Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. While new teams on emerging projects have their own types of dysfunctional patterns that are due to stress and lack of experience, The sorts of dysfunctions that you see in an established and successful team are often the result of doing things right for years or even decades. However, their costs can still keep your team from reaching their goals. In this episode, we're going to discuss some dysfunctional or suboptimal behaviors that are often seen in established and successful teams and how you can mitigate them. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, speaking of dysfunctional teams, I feel like I'm a contestant in a swimming competition right now, and that Microsoft, being my teammate, is a boat anchor. My machine has started blue screening and rebooting again at random. And what's interesting is I turned off Windows Update. You know, I was like, hey, pause updates because I pause it for as long as I possibly can. And then I try to find a day where I know I'm not going to be doing anything for a while and then turn it back on and catch it up and then pause it for as long as I possibly can so that they don't break my workflow. And yesterday evening, my machine blue screened, rebooted and started installing an update, even though it was turned off. Microsoft says this doesn't happen. They're lying. Uh, so pretty frustrated right now because it, it burns up a lot of time. Uh, now, on the positive side, um, I had my Russian class last night, five minutes after said reboot. <laughs> you know, So I was like scrambling around trying to get everything together for that. And my teacher has said that um, my reading has improved substantially, just like in the last couple of weeks. Um, I think what's happened there is when I've been doing the flashcards, I've actually been reading the sentences out loud every single time. And mm-hmm. that's kind of helped my pronunciation and enunciation or whatever. So that's pretty encouraging. I was on a plateau there for a couple of months and it was rough. Yeah. I didn't feel like I was moving and now I feel like I am again. So that's good. So how about you? Well, I took my midterm. It wasn't too bad, honestly. Open book, open note. I looked a few things up, mostly syntactical from like the first few chapters. Not a lot of like, concepts that I had to look up still haven't heard back, uh, on my grade for the first project. Remember how I kind of questioned some of the grading on that. Uh, but I did get grades on my other two, uh, assignments and, uh, both 100. So, um, that's good. I started eating solid food again, still keeping it rather bland, you know, like toast and potatoes. I was able to get some steamed potatoes and toast at uh, our small group lunch Sunday after church. It was, you know, nice to be able to eat with everyone. So that was cool. And especially with the Irish diet, with your background, (laughs) potatoes (laughs) and toast, right? Yep. In good news, better news, I guess, I bought a book of Christmas carols to learn on guitar. Uh, It's really cool. It has like the chords and then it has like the melody in tabs and in written out music, treble clef. I liked that uh, at the beginning, it has a list of strumming patterns. And then throughout the book, each song has, oh, here's the suggested strumming for this song, which is really nice. It makes it easier for me to figure out, okay, this is the rhythm. This is what they're kind of going for with it. You know, it's funny because like 
that's where I struggle the most is with the strumming. It's not that I have trouble strumming. It's that I have trouble hearing it when I'm listening to music. Once I know a pattern, I can recognize it. But and it may I think it's going to be one of those things that once I get a, enough patterns down in my head, I'll be able to start being like, oh, I can hear what they're doing here. But it's just it's finding that pattern that I I'm still f- kind of trying to figure out. Um, once I've got it down, I can listen to a song and be like, oh, yeah, I know they're using this strumming pattern or they're using a variant of this strumming pattern a lot of times. So that's cool. And it's so that like just adds to my repertoire of things that I can do. So it's really nice. We have a new patron. Joe Graff joined us. Joe sent us an email with some uh, really great suggestions, wrote back to him. And uh, we just want to publicly thank him for those good ideas. Those were those were some really good ideas. Some of them we had already we had already thought of and are in the works down the line. Some of them were like hadn't even thought about that. So yeah, that's actually twice he's done that once to us on the Patreon thing, and once for me on Knockout JS stuff about three years ago. I think we had a conversation back and forth about some Knockout stuff, and it ended up saving my bacon on a project at work because like few weeks after that email, I was like, oh, I've got to implement this. I have no idea how to do it. And it clicked. I was like, wait, I have an email where he mentioned something and I was able to take that thread back and make the thing happen very quickly. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of saving bacon, take your financial confidence to the next level. Lucas Casares is a fee-only certified financial planner and financial coach serving tech professionals with his company, Level Up Financial Planning, virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Level Up Financial Planning, like the Complete Developer Podcast, believes in the importance of having a real plan and taking action so that you can live your best life. It's pretty common for people to think that they are too young or they don't have enough investments to work with a financial planner. But Level Up has a unique pricing model that allows you to pay monthly and without requiring investment management. So there's no reason to wait to feel confident about your financial decisions. And best of all, Lucas and Level Up Financial Planning is a fiduciary for his clients. And this requires him to act in his client's best interest. He's not a salesman and you only pay as long as you are getting value. So you stop paying when you're no longer getting value. And there are some more fun resources and more information available at levelupfinancialplanning.com. New teams who are building entirely new projects are often very similar due to working on new things with people they don't know well, along with incredible uncertainty, they certainly have their share of dysfunctional behavior. However, one thing that often surprises newer developers is that even older, more established and successful teams have their own major dysfunctions and dysfunctional behavior that have to be overcome in order to take things to the next level. Unfortunately, these behaviors are often a bit more difficult to correct. For starters, if the team is currently successful, it's much harder to convince anyone to rock the boat. However, just because a set of behaviors served you well when you were getting to your current level, that doesn't imply that those same behaviors will work well to make your team more successful in the future. Further, for at least some of the behaviors we're going to discuss, those behaviors could also cause catastrophic team failure in the future. So in this episode, we're going to go through a few dysfunctional things that happen on good teams. 
Now, don't be disheartened if you see some of these on your own team. Remember that these things happen as a result of success, not in opposition to it. And for each one, we're going to discuss why it happens, what happens when it's no longer useful, how to correct it, and a few things to avoid. Yeah, so the first problem is a fixation on process and an unwillingness to change it. And this happens for a reason. Getting processes nailed down is one of the major keys to success. That underpins everything we've done on this podcast. That underpins the way that Beej and I both approach things for the most part. The parts of our lives that work well have a process. <laughs> I'll put it that way. <laughs> the parts that don't, we're working on processes, right? Because we both know this thing. It just makes it easier to train new people. It makes it easier to systematize and automate work and to make sure that everything that needs to happen actually does happen. And consistent refinement of process is probably why your team is still around, to be honest. Yeah, that's very true. So what happens when it's no longer useful? Well, the process starts to rapidly waste time uh, when things change and the process doesn't change with it. It's a problem of... We set up this process, and I've seen this so many times with people where they get so focused on that this is the way it's done and not process is supposed to change with what we're doing as well. You know, change can be as simple as a shift in team dynamics or as complicated as changing your application's target market. It doesn't matter what the change is. If you don't change your process along with it, then you're going to have problems. Yeah, I've been on a team where we added a single junior developer you know, and there's a bunch of very, very seasoned senior devs on the team. And we added a, not even a junior dev, dude was an intern and mm -hmm. it broke all kinds of things. And it was actually very good because he was really, really sharp and quick on the uptake and asked good questions and all that. But the fact is, is we had, we kind of solidified on a way of doing things that really was maladaptive and we did not notice until this guy came in and rocked the boat. Yeah. And it took us about six months to really get our act together because, you know, we were having builds fail. We were having delivery dates getting missed and it wasn't, you know, it's not like he was creating a problem. It's just that there was, there were a couple things happening. One his throughput was higher than we expected and we didn't have QA resources to meet that. Mm. He also on the side was learning some stuff that he wanted to do in the future. And it turned out it was very handy for the company. And so that also changed some of the distribution patterns for our software. <laughs> and so the senior devs are like having to scramble, trying to figure out how to make installers for stuff that it's like, I've never worked on this platform. I don't know anything about Android studio. And, you know, it was all good stuff, but it was still extremely jarring because the team dynamic shifted and we did not, you know, immediately start looking at processes when we started having problems because you think the processes are there to save you when stuff changes and they aren't. No, but well, the processes are built around what you're doing to make what you're doing now more effective. And when what you're doing now changes, that's when you need to change the process. So let's talk about let, let's talk about how to correct it. One of the best ways to correct a fixation on process is to have regular retrospectives or postmortems when problems occur and to solicit input from the team 
on how the problem can be avoided in the future. That's actually what we ended up doing in this particular case because we realized stuff was continuing to break and we had to start looking and doing root cause analysis. And a lot of it was, it made us all look really bad as a team initially. And then after a while, it's like, no, these are, we're having these problems because they're growing pains. It has nothing to do with being good or bad at what we're doing. It's like, no, you change the situation. So you have to change the situation. Now, there are a few things that you shouldn't do. And these are some things that we did on that particular team for a while. And unfortunately, that was not the way to approach it. The first thing you shouldn't do is you don't show up with suggestions on how to fix the busted processes. I did it. Several of us did it. There was there were arguments about you know what was the best way to fix things, and we wasted a bunch of time. The thing about it is, is even if you're right, politically, you're pitting yourself against the rest of the team, and your role will be remembered if anything goes wrong. There's no upside to you. If you suggest something and it doesn't work, that will backfire. So instead you get the team together and get everybody to talk and then see, you know, if you can get an agreement out of it. So you you actually work towards a solution instead of taking the solution and try to work towards a problem. Mm -hmm. So the next thing we're going to talk about is gatekeeping behavior. This happens as teams grow and change. Uh, Some people tend to hang on to knowledge And it's not even because they're actively trying to protect their careers. Uh, It can often happen when a previous employee makes an expensive mistake. You know, it's funny. I have seen this in places and I'm actually actively trying to avoid this. And it's something that's hard to avoid sometimes. Yeah, it's almost impossible. Over time, you're going to you're going to be the dude for something. Right. Everybody ends up being the dude, you know, and that's, oh, yeah. and that's from a gender neutral interpretation of the word dude, right? Like it's California interpretation of dude, I guess dude or dude at, yeah. but I have like, I had a conversation last week in a meeting where they kept calling something that I wrote as BJ's API. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anybody, anybody can work on this. Like just because, you know, it, it was a small little integration piece that like, it didn't require more than one developer. So I just, I put it together in a few weeks and we're using it, but I was like, don't call it my API, call it the name that it's supposed to have, because I don't want people thinking I'm the only one who can work on it. Right. And you know, another way to characterize that is to go, look, if it is my API, you know, the proof that I did a good job is because somebody else can work on it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting how this happens because, again, it's a lot of it is just avoidance of expensive mistakes. A lot of it is you have an old system and you're porting to a new system. We have this at, at our work. We got some people that know the old code and the code that does the migration, the data migration. And then, you know, people that started like a year ago or so, that was kind of the cutoff on knowing anything about the old system. And as a result, when they have a problem with the old system, some of our most seasoned devs get pulled off to deal with that crap. So what I've been actually doing is trying to learn what I can and try to sneak in there and and get to the point where I'm actually useful so that that's not a problem because it does, it puts a drag on the team that you can't control. Yeah. And as a result, you have deadlines and stuff slip. It can also backfire in a big way when the person that is 
gatekeeping or being forced to gatekeep happens to go on vacation or they retire or they leave the company or they just flat out die or they're just overloaded, you know, dealing with some other crisis. You always have to consider that what happens if you know, your primary software developer, you get hit by a bus and not that software developers are commonly hit by buses, but that's, you know, just kind of the phrase. What do you do from there? And a lot of companies have no idea. No. What happens if, you know, their spouse gets promoted and they move? Yeah. Like, you know, that I've actually seen that happen. Yeah. Where, and this was to a manager, his wife got promoted within her company and caused them to have to move out of state. And he was like, you know, I'm, I can get a job there just as well as I can have one here. And she's making enough money now to where she can support us while I'm getting that job. So like nobody yeah, held of course with the remote. Yeah. Well nowadays. Yeah. But like back, this was years ago, but uh, in the before times, in the before times, <laughs> before the plague. <laughs> yeah. But no, like nobody held it against him because like, it was just, Hey, that's what you do. But that happens, you know? So since this happens, what can you do to correct it? The first thing you want to do is find out the history of the situation and take time to prove that you or someone else can actually help. And then suggest some cross training. This is what I've done on one of the projects I was on that is in maintenance now because they have me on so much other stuff, so much newer stuff. We had a, a developer who had been working on older tech and wanted to move into the newer stuff. So I said, hey, this guy wants to move over, like wants to get some knowledge of the newer stuff rather than have him like throw him to the wolves and have him build a whole new thing. Why don't we have him learn this system that's already built and he can help maintain it? Yeah. And that way it, it spreads that knowledge base. Actually, just <laughs> literally before we got on the call, I was sending out some emails because I was looking at one issue and I found another one and I was like, Hey, found this issue. Might want to assign this person or that person. Cause they both want to learn more about this project. And so like, that is a great way to do it is suggest that cross training when things are slow or when an opportunity comes up that, you know, like with that opportunity, it was okay. There's not a lot, we're just going in and changing some mappings because we made some database changes. And so it's was like, all right, you're not doing a whole lot of code changes, but you got to go in and like understand the code. So it gave him the opportunity to come in, read through the code, understand it and ask questions in a, Hey, this doesn't have to be done immediately. Like we're not under a time crunch. We're not like losing business because of this. This is a, an update. Isn't a mission critical one. Yeah. That's something I really didn't put in here, but trying to make sure things are structured where there it is low risk when you cross train people is a really good idea. Yeah. Uh, because they are going to make some mistakes. They'll make better ones than, you know, a completely green developer will. But I mean, even somebody with 30 years of experience, you know, if they go into a new code base, they're going to foul something up. Oh, yeah. You know, heck, I killed one of the database servers at work the other day. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize the scale of something. <laughs> so that was kind of an oops. I mean, we got it. We fixed it. It was just sort of 
one of those things that, you know, and I've been working there almost a year. And it was just a different part of the system that I hadn't touched. I've touched stuff peripheral to it. So imagine a language switch and a framework switch and and all that. Yeah, you've got to have a you've got to have some safety nets under people. Mm-hmm. I mean, thankfully it was a dev database server. Yeah. I mean, I still completely nuked it and an SQS queue as well. <laughs> so, you know, whatever. Now, one thing you don't want to do is don't come in on your first day and see this and then start trying to suggest cross-training and don't start inserting yourself into somebody else's code where you're not welcome. This will make enemies. So if you're just like, oh, I know how to do this better than you, like that ticks people off. Even if you're right, especially if you're right, Mm -hmm. honestly, that will make them madder than anything else. And you're going to be fighting the whole way to be able to, you know, move the ball down the field essentially. So don't do that. You know, give it a little bit of time and, you know, kind of work your way in slowly. That also keeps you from making, you know, massive mistakes because you're kind of suggesting that, Hey, I'd kind of like to learn a little bit more about this and people will start looking for the opportunity for you to do so in a way that's safe versus, Oh, you pushed your way in and you're in a situation where if you blow it up, you cost a bunch of money. Yeah. That's, that's very good. And speaking of blowing things up, one thing that you see a lot in, you know, more established teams is a concealment of weakness. This happens because as teams evolve, they go through periods of downsizing or people are worried about downsizing. And as a result, established team members are often reluctant to be open about their weaknesses as far as what skills they don't have, um, even if those weaknesses are easy to mitigate. Yeah. When this is no longer useful, it's potentially very dangerous to the product stability. and project timelines as developers try to bend a new framework into an old way of thinking. Right. So I had a project that I worked on for seven or eight months at a previous gig and I left and this was, you know, the one I was in what last year. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all blurred together because of COVID. And the guy that came in and started working on it after me said, we don't need all this inversion and control stuff. And so he ripped it all out. And so he's got everything new and up inside of, you know, .NET Core controllers. And it's like that whole framework is built around that. And you changed it to .NET Framework 2.0, basically, type approach to everything. You know, he ripped all the generics out. He made, you know, like where I had generics, he made separate classes for all the things. He didn't understand generics. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's right. I was like, having trainings for the other junior developers on inversion of control when I was, I did one for him before .NET core came out because I'm like, Oh my goodness, this makes life so much easier. Yeah. The thing about it is, is the parties that allow this to happen know what my hourly rate is. So at some point they'll contact me if they want it fixed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm assuming this person just doesn't understand .NET core. Right. And like, I don't even know how you would, do that in .NET Core because the that would be so painful to set up because it's built based on right. dependency injection. So like you're injecting repositories into a controller, for instance, and then you got a unit of work under the repository layer. And I was mm-hmm. we weren't using EF Core, we're using Dapper uh, for the okay. database access. And so like I'm managing the connection lifetime in the unit of work, and I had the whole policy set up on all that, and then you had a, a repository sitting over 
the top of that. And then the controller interacted with that repository because it was very cruddy. Mm -hmm. And as far as I can tell, he, what I was told, he's spinning up a new, just raw SQL connection and then doing the dapper stuff right in the controller with no repository and anywhere that was just something he had to, you know, had to create something instead of injecting it. He's just spinning it up, which I mean, this works, but it's completely untestable. You have no control over object lifetime. And he's decided to do it because the environment he's really built for is desktop development. He is a fantastic WinForms developer. Mm -hmm. But like, this is the web. It's 2020. It's not 2004. And you don't have a single SQL connection and you really need to be managing lifetime of those connections. So yeah, it's going to be a mess. I mean, that project is going to fail at some point because of that. And it's not going to be my fault because I'm not there anymore. So, you know, they know how to, they know how to fix it. They got my number. Wow. You know, I couldn't stop them from causing that problem. But, you know, once it gets to the point where they realize that I was right, you know, like, yeah, I'm open. For so, uh, speaking of that, uh, how to correct this concealment of weakness. Yeah. So you don't go to somebody and say, you don't know how to do this. Instead, what you do is you, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to do a lunch and learn on this topic. Mm -hmm. Here's how this works. Here's the benefits this offers. And by the way, I did do that. <laughs> I think he just wasn't yeah. paying attention, but basically you set it up so that the people who you suspect are hiding their ignorance and you start talking to them and go, okay, you know, here's, here's what I'm kind of thinking about doing, you know, on this topic you know, what are your thoughts and get them involved in it so that they show up. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. You also want to, um, explain how you would show, like talk to them and maybe explain how you would show this to someone who doesn't know it at all. Right. You know, and try to get them, kind of that interaction there with, uh, all right, well, so how would you explain this to someone? What's the the phrase? How would you explain this to a five-year-old? Yeah. Explain it like I'm five. Yeah. The other thing this does is if you don't think that they know something and they actually mm -hmm. do, and you happen to be wrong, this makes it not blow up in your face. Yeah. You're not accusing them of not knowing something. You're getting them to help you better express it. Right. Cause you know, they may go, Hey, this idea is crap. And I saw it 20 years ago. It didn't work then. <laughs> you know? If you've been around long enough, you probably have one or two of those things. Mm -hmm. One thing that you don't want to do is come in talking about how someone doesn't know their way around new tech. Don't ever do that to anybody. You know, for, for starters, you may not know as much as you think, you know, and this, this occurs even if you've got decades of experience. The thing about it is, is success is a team affair. It's not just you or the other person, but failure can be very, very individual. <laughs> and so if you make this mm -hmm. blow up in your face, that failure is probably going to be on you, even if the other guy was at fault. <laughs> yeah. You got to watch what you, you say here just because, especially when you're dealing with, with people who think they know. Right. More than they know. I don't know. Like, I don't want to say walk on eggshells, but you want to do it in a respectful, friendly manner. Yeah. It's like, just yeah. because you're not walking on eggshells does not mean that you want to be stomping on them. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's not the same, uh, same mm -hmm. thing. So 
the next issue that successful teams will run into is knowledge silos. Yeah, and this is a little bit different than the gatekeeping behavior because a lot of this stuff is more like they just have experience with the business or they have experience with other people in the organization Mm -hmm. that you don't. And this happens because teams change over time. You know, old projects stop being actively developed, but they're still supported. And all the interconnections between the pieces, all the documentation, all the where are the zip disks located type discussions that happen, those people are privy to that. You are not because you weren't there. And so it's a lot of peripheral knowledge. The developers who work on these projects end up taking care of support rather than burdening the rest of the team with the interruption because it's stuff they know is going away, but they just got to kind of get it to creak across the finish line. Yeah. Like when I think of the difference between gatekeeping and knowledge silos is gatekeeping is more of an active behavior. It's more of a, Hey, I'm protecting myself and knowledge silos is more of a passive. It's like, Oh, I just sort of ended up because I've had that happen. That's what I was saying. I'm, I'm actively avoiding becoming a gatekeeper when I realized I was going into a knowledge silo on some of our stuff. Because uh, I've been there for, what, four years now, uh, roughly? Um, yeah, yeah, four years. Wow, it's been a while. So yeah, I'm starting to get into some of those. And I'm just like, all right, let's bring some other people into the silo. Let's spread this out a little bit. Right. It's, I think a lot of it too is it's a matter of, Hey, do I want to keep this thing or not? People that are in a knowledge silo would really like to have it spread around. Whereas if they're mm-hmm. gatekeeping, they're trying to protect it. Whereas yeah. the knowledge silo is just like, I've got to deal with this problem because everything's always on fire. Yeah. So when this is no longer useful is similar to concealment of weakness. Um, it can often result in catastrophic failure when, the person who understands it, the the knowledge silo isn't available. Be that because they're on vacation or they left, they got a new job, they retired. They're working in one of the other knowledge silos that they know about yeah. that's more critical. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's never just one. Right. It can also make it really difficult to migrate from older systems to newer ones simply because there aren't enough people who understand the old system. So at some point, like if you have to migrate and there's two people that know it and you got another 30 developers over here that don't, those 30 developers are never going to be adequately helped by those two people because they're like physics is in the way now. I'll tell you one thing I've seen happen and it's, it was a bit frustrating is building a, kind of a replacement for an older system. They, in the past, had had developers who would go, they would give them the, say, all right, we want to replace this older system. And they'd basically just copy the older system in the newer technology. Right. And they were trying to avoid that. So they would not allow us access to or information about the older system. And which was, that's an attempted way of fixing it, but that makes other problems. Oh yes, it does. Because you don't realize how much like what all the older system is doing and why it's set up that way. Because, oh, hey, this one person runs this one report every two years. And it only goes to like this other person, like only goes up this one channel. And so the people who use it 90% of the time don't know about that. So they don't say anything when you're designing. And then, yeah, oh, it's. (laughs) 
that one report happens to go across like the governor's desk, you know, and it's suddenly not there and there's regulatory stuff. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You've got to correct this and you have to tread carefully while you do it. The best way to overcome this is to start asking questions about the old system when it comes up. So like if a small issue comes up, you know, get some clarity about why it came up or see if you can pair with the people that are working on it. Go ahead. I just want to see what the inside of this thing looks like. This is the previous system. You know, what does it do versus what the thing is that we're working on? Mm -hmm. What you don't want to do is to try and push your way in suddenly. Yeah. It's one thing to express interest. Like, Hey, I'd like to understand this. It's different. Like it's a whole another issue. If you're just like trying to push your way in there, that makes enemies. Whatever you do, trust me on this one. Don't trash talk the older tech. Yeah, I've seen this a lot because I worked at a company that you know still had Delphi in active use, and you'd have C sharp developers go, "Oh, that's old crappy tech." And of course, the Delphi devs are like, "Well, I can control the L two cache, and you can't even control your RAM usage." And then you look like an idiot because you just started something that didn't have to happen. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, the thing about it is, is don't make enemies. The other thing too is pushing your way in. You may be pushing in at a bad time, like when something is going on that you don't completely understand or there's political stuff and you'll end up in the middle of it. Whereas if you kind of ask and work like you have some manners, you can get in there when it's actually possible to learn something and it's not going to mess up. Because again, another system has a whole other set of politics around it mm-hmm. and you don't know how big the sharks are in that water. You know, talking about making enemies and politics really leads on into the next dysfunction, and that is conflict avoidance. Yeah, so after people work together for years, they end up understanding each other's triggers pretty well, regardless of whether they respect each other or not. (laughs) And they tend to avoid conflict because conflict is usually not very useful, and it causes a bunch of problems, wastes a bunch of time. You know, it's destructive to morale and people just want to get a paycheck and they want to go home. They want to do the job. And unless they're pranksters like me and Will, and we've known each other so long, sometimes we just trigger each other to watch what happens. Yeah. Well, there is that. (laughs) So is that, are you the reason I'm getting blue screens? (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could take uh, credit for that, but no, that is, (laughs) that is not me. That is Microsoft. So when this is no longer useful is, you know, as time goes on, some conflicts that need to be resolved won't, you know, because people are remaining polite and you might even get some passive aggressive behavior out of this. Oh, you will. Yeah. If uh, <laughs> And it'll be expressed just like I just said that. Too. Uh-huh. <laughs> if the conflict matters, the lack of resolution can cause a lot of problems over time. Yeah, so I worked at a company here in Nashville, and I believe this is still true. I'm not sure. I know a few people that have worked out there, and I haven't asked them. But they used to have two IT departments because there were some siblings that were owners of the company, and they did not get along. And they didn't like the way the IT department was working, and they butted heads so much they ended up – both siblings ended up hiring a group of people for their own IT departments. Now, I'm not sure how the building wiring works when you have that going on. Like you have two completely different control structures for all the things. Help desk, all of it. 
that's real bad. That spends a lot of money. And they, I can't imagine that they did well with that. I know the department was extremely dysfunctional when I was there. I stayed a week. And if it's, you know, when there's so much crap in the barn that I won't walk in there, it's full. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) You don't want that. And that, that happened because people didn't deal with the conflict in a reasonable way to go, Hey, look, this is how we make our living. We've got to figure out some decent way to get along. You really also can't correct this unless you're high up enough that you have the power to fire people. And even then it's a complete minefield because you don't know who's on which side all the way down. And so you don't know where other problems are going to spring up out of this. The thing is, is you do have to bring the conflict forward and get it resolved. And this might require that somebody leave or it could be easier if you're lucky, but it's really dependent on your situation. And it's really hard to do this well. Um, Generally speaking, uh, you could bring in outside consultant and have an insultant, yeah, an insultant, (laughs) you know, like Will, and have them stir the pot a bit because, you know, they can get stuff going. Then the instigator leaves, like they get stuff going, they get the conflict like talked about, maybe even get it resolved a bit. But if there's hard feelings towards the person who started it, it's that consultant and they leave. Yeah. I could actually see Will doing this for a living. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always a possibility, but I don't know. It, it's stressful being in that kind of situation. Yeah. If you don't have the kind of power to actually fix it, try to learn from both sides and start acting as a bridge between the two. So if you get along with both parties and you stay neutral, eventually your opinion will get trusted. Hopefully just be like, Hey, look, I'm just trying to do the best job I can. Yeah. And a lot of times you'll end up being that communication channel between two parties that can't get along. I've, you know, worked at companies where there were two people that had had an absolute screaming match. And I was friends with both of them, went to lunch on the regular with both of them, not together. So when they had to work together, it was just like, I was relaying messages. I'm like, I'm basically you guys' fax machine. Yeah. But it avoided the problem exploding any worse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it was, it was totally worth it. It's just. Yeah. So what you don't want to do is you don't want to obviously take sides Unless you can enforce your decision, you're almost always better off not getting into an existing conflict, taking that that role that Will did of just the in between. And a lot of times when you you see these conflicts, you can you may have a penchant towards one side or the other, but you can if you're not actively involved in it, you can see from the outside, you know, they have a point and they have a point. Yeah. And you can kind of be that go between. Another thing that happens over time in teams you know, that are successful is you will get unofficial communication channels, like I was in that previous example. Yeah. Because both those people had the same boss who wasn't me. <laughs> and so, like, here's a guy in another department that's having to deal with this. Old friendships and good working relationships will persist even if the org chart starts shifting around. And these tend to develop into informal communication channels over time. I mean, people just go to lunch. These communication channels become stronger if the normal communication channels are dysfunctional, slow, or politically encumbered, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So when this becomes no longer useful is when the communication channels are not the official ones, uh, and it can result in decisions being made in a way that is unpredictable to 
people who aren't a part of that communication channel. And it can also be hard to handle when you make decisions based on what you think is supposed to happen. Now, another thing that I've seen happen here is um, where a developer had been like the primary developer on a project. They worked with, you know, it was like an internal project. They worked with the internal customer, helped build it and stuff. And then as it came out, they kind of were there for testing and, you know, any issues they had. Then over time, they just sort of like anything that happened with that app, they went back to that developer, back to that developer, back to that developer. Well, as the organization grew and changed, there became like a change management process, you know, a help desk, all this stuff. And they just bypassed that because, hey, you know, I know this person. We worked together years ago and we've been just, you know, any issue, just send them an email and they fix it. And I have actually seen when I first started, some of the people who'd been around for 15, 20 years actually get in trouble because they had been told numerous times, no, you have to walk them through, like tell them to go through the proper channels. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it was just a simple fix. It's like, it doesn't matter. When you retire in a few years, they're going to have to learn this. Then it would be better for them to learn it with you who they know. Yeah. And you know what to expect from them versus them suddenly having to switch over after you retire and everything blowing up. Yeah. With that, I can tell you, like, we're about to get into how to correct it. I can tell you how what we did was once it got across to those developers, hey, you have to start doing this, like upper management had to come down on them and be like, look, like, this is the rule. You have to start doing this and got across. The point of it is so that we have we know what changes have been made. We've got a way to track it in multiple areas. And we know why those changes are, have been made because like, even if we've got source control, the why might not be there. Right. And that means that we don't have to bother you. So you get to work on your code. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So once that got across to them, what they did was they said, all right, you don't just go do it, put it into the system. It, like the first few times do it for them, then walk the customer through, Hey, here's how you do it. I'll walk you through it. I'll help you do it. Right. Yeah. Just however you can get into that communication channel, like the proper channel, get it there. I mean, yeah. And also if you can step into the, the informal one as well, you can often drag the people screaming into the the right way to do stuff. Yeah. That's what had happened. You had to get someone. What we did was we got someone who is in the informal channel, those older developers, we got them on board with it. We could talk to them in developer language and explain, Hey, you know, this is why, like, could you imagine having to walk into, into this to fix something and nobody's communicated this and you don't know what's going on. Like you get them on that mindset and they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And yeah. Don't you want to retire someday? Do you want to get a phone call when you're on the beach in Maui about the TRS 80 in the basement that we still haven't replaced? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm just kidding. It's probably a PDP 11 at this point. (laughs) It's probably even worse. Yeah. I mean, PDP 11 was better in some respects, but whatever. The thing that you don't want to do is threaten or try to break the communication channel. Human communication channels will route around problems 
and their evolution will continue until the problem that caused them goes away. So if people are talking and it's not through the official channels, you need to figure out why that's more efficient Yeah, and fix that. Because if you're not doing that, you'll never fix the problem. You're just moving the problem. Mm-hmm. Speaking of moving problems around, the very next dysfunction we're going to talk about is slow decisions. Successful teams often have had a very good results from being deliberate about the decisions they make. Rush decisions are expensive and can cost a lot of problems. So they want to take their time. They want to talk about it. They want to sit and stew on it and, you know, spend six months on something that's going to take two weeks to develop. Yeah. You know, you and I are both totally not being snarky about that because of any experiences we've had. The thing about it is when this is no longer useful, a lot of times things are stable and a lot of decisions are being made later on that don't have to be taken to the extreme. You know, sometimes you need to make a decision for exploratory purposes. When you can't do that and you're forced to make a perfect decision or no decision at all, it can really hamper your ability to take advantage of changes in the market. No. So, To correct this, you want to encourage trying new things out in very limited circumstances, you know, in situations where you can quickly switch back uh, to the tried and true. What I like to do in things like this is present a proof of concept. Now, this is something that I guess it's more of a newer team issue I've, I've had, but it's where you present a proof of concept about some newer tech or something. And they go, oh, hey, that's awesome. We're going to use it. And you're like, this wasn't built for use. This was built to show you, hey, look how much more efficient we could be with this new way of doing it. It's not got the security, not got you know, the stability in place for it. It was just a quick throw together. Hey, look what we can do. Yeah, I've been burned by that <laughs> quite a few times. I have some production code running that is handling quite a few million dollars worth of, of sales right now that I threw together in a weekend and it was just as a proof of concept and they stuck it in the product. Yeah. Like wholesale copy and paste. It's in there. <laughs> like, and it uh, does not make me feel very comfortable. I'll put it that way, but it hasn't fallen over and it's been 10 years. So hey, maybe it won't. Um, Somebody is probably cussing me now looking through that code though. <laughs> yeah. One thing you don't want to do is go around raging about how slowly decisions are being made. Because it doesn't speed anything up, for one thing. A lot of times, also, decisions are slow for reasons that you don't understand. Because sometimes the company's financial situation is not what you think it is. Or there's other stuff going on. Or they've got projects that they're trying to start that you don't know about yet. And so they're debating not what you think they're debating, but they're debating something else. And Mm -hmm. so it makes you look really hasty and irrational when those people have information that you don't and you're trying to force a decision that looks, you know, looks overly sped up. And speaking of things that happen when stuff is overly sped up, another dysfunction of a you know established team is a lack of accountability. Now, this happens for good reasons. It's because blame games are not productive. And if your team's been around long enough, hopefully you've learned this. As a team ages, they tend to either engage in blame games more often and they destroy themselves or they engage in them less. And this tends to often result in no accountability at all. You know, mistakes were made, but not by anybody here. Yeah. 
no. even though we're the only ones that touch the stuff. And when this is not useful, because like it can be a good idea for a team to be like, all right, we're we're not going to place blame on anyone. We're you know we're going to accept it as a team, and we're going to deal with it as a team. But when that is no longer useful is when it becomes pathological. It means that mistakes aren't even acknowledged. When mistakes are not acknowledged, they can't be corrected. Like, you know, like Will said, it's like, oh, well, there's not a problem here. Nothing to see here. Move on. Yeah, it's uh, you know, when the lack of a negative feedback loop. Most engineering types, if, you know, if they actually understand what a negative feedback loop is, which is most engineering types, understand that when a system loses one, it becomes unstable. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you overcorrect either, which is what a blame game is, but you've got to go, hey, I've got feedback. This isn't working. Yeah. To correct this, you want to start by acknowledging your own mistakes. Like it sort of sets a precedent, but it also like sets an example for others. You, know, you want to do it publicly without shame. So don't be like, feel bad about it. Like my bad, ask for feedback and, you know, Hey, you know, what, what do you guys think I could do better next time? And in the same vein, try to convince your team to engage in regular retrospectives, postmortems when a problem occurs. I actually have an entire talk on retrospectives and postmortems. I think I call it postmortems because I don't want to just like you hear retrospective, you think like agile and stuff, but like you can do a postmortem no matter what project management style you have. Yeah, it really doesn't matter who made the mistake so long as you can acknowledge it and fix it. And, you know, part of the deal with this, too, is like if you're talking to older devs, like senior devs or actually older, you go, hey, look, it's good for us to admit when we make mistakes because the junior devs see that and they'll admit when they've made a mistake rather than doubling down on it. And then we have to clean it up at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. And you can kind of sell it that way because all of us have had that experience at least once or twice in the last year. (laughs) The thing you don't want to do is focus on who made the mistake to a great degree. Focus on what it was and how it can be avoided. Who doesn't matter unless you're upper management and there's one person that's constantly screwing stuff up. But what can save you from a more expensive mistake later? Because if you acknowledge the small mistakes, you can correct them before it becomes a habit. Yeah. So the thing is with the, the who doesn't matter in the public, like right. the who matters privately. So like this is the who is when the who made the mistake matters is when you go to them privately and, it, you know, offer to help, offer to figure out, hey, you know, what caused it? Because it literally just could be an oops, I missed that. Or it could be I, they don't really understand how something works. Yeah. Yeah. So you and boy, have I seen some of those. Yeah. <laughs> you want to not focus on the who in like the meeting, the the group, the public team, but in private, that's where you focus on the two who you can go go to them or like maybe have the team lead go to them and talk to them. So the last one we're going to talk about is focus on outdated metrics. What happens here is early on, someone will come up with some metric that can show whether a team is getting better or worse. These metrics sometimes stick around longer than they are useful. Right. And when it's no longer useful, 
people make decisions that make the metrics look better while making actual results worse. That's actually your marker for when this has gone awry. Uh, because people, you know, they, you know, this is something that I've heard public school teachers complain about a lot, right? They have a test that's supposed to go, hey, you know, here's how much the students have learned this year. You know, how good of a teacher are you based off of this, which is probably not really very smart anyway, whatever they do their thing. And what happens? Well, five years in, you have teachers teaching to the test. Mm-hmm. Guaranteed, because you're measuring something and you're evaluating people based on it. They're going to optimize for what you're evaluating on. Yeah, that's not even a bad thing. That's the way they should behave. That's right. Like that's intelligent behavior there. If this is what you're measuring, then this is what I'm going to. This is why we have like in in Sprint, we have those regular meetings with the product owner and stuff. It's like, hey, this is what you tell us you want. This is the goal. So this is what we're going towards. If what we're building is not what you really want, we need to know that early on. So we have those regular meetings to do that because we're going to optimize for what gets the reward. Yeah. Now, the way to correct this is first, you got to find out what the metric is intended to address and figure out kind of, all right, where did things go wrong? Where did it not? Is it either not measuring the right thing or is it poorly optimized for that? When you're doing this, you have to remember that at some point in time, this was useful. And so it might be beneficial to look back and go, all right, why was it useful then? Why is it not useful now? What happened in in between? You know, you're not going to get around this kind of stuff without addressing the business reason for that particular metric. And you really shouldn't try to get out of that. You, You need to look at what function did it serve initially? And how do we get back to serving that function if that's what we need? Yeah, because I mean, I've worked with developers still, right, on the .NET stack that use Hungarian notation for their naming of variables. And they're very strict on their team about that. Yep. And, you know, Hungarian notation is like where you do like the M underscore ZSTR, then the name of the string field. So it's like it's a module level, zero terminated string. And we're calling it this because it puts all the information there in the variable name. Because you have an editor that you can't hover over stuff with a mouse and get that information in a timely fashion. Right? Like that's why people did that like in 1994. But they're still enforcing it. And it's like, yeah, we're coming up on 30 years, bro. That's not reasonable, but people are are stuck on that. And so you go, okay, what are you trying to achieve? And what you're probably trying to achieve is have stuff, you know, use the right variable name, use the right scope, be descriptive of what it is, what it does. And the IDE has met you halfway now and you need to revise those. So the way you fix this is you don't attack the metric itself, right? You go, oh, this makes the code unreadable because they go, you can't read that. You're just not as skilled as I am, right? Like it doesn't help. You have to address your concerns towards what the metric is intended to measure with the intent of refining that measurement. And if people go after a while, they go, hey, this is crap. Why are we still doing this? It was their decision. Now, you probably knew it was coming and you probably angled it that way, but you didn't come in and say, hey, this is crap. Why are we doing it? You let somebody with power do that. Right. Guys, when you look in a mirror, you're going to notice imperfections, no matter who you are, even supermodels. The same is true of teams. Even the most successful ones have some imperfections. It's important to remember that problems in an established team are often the result of adaptations gone wrong rather than the result of neglect or anything else. It's just 
that people adapt until they're comfortable and then they stopped adapting. And in our industry, you have to keep adapting because things are ever changing. Uh, we want to give a huge uh, shout out to Lucas from Level Up Financial Planning for sponsoring this week's episodes. Through his sponsorship, Lucas is helping us achieve our podcasting goals, just like he'll help you achieve your financial goals. It makes a big difference to get support. So definitely you know, check his stuff out. Beach, what do you have for us for Tricks of the Trade? So guys, since COVID, I've sort of become an integral part of the production team at church. I mean, I was already on the team and very active before this, but I've been doing almost every service since this happened. Um, I was part of the group that, you know, created the streaming account and everything, you know, and I've even had a chance to lead the team a few times. One of the first things I did when some of the restrictions were lifted and we were able to have more people come on the team was to train people to replace me on the camera because I was the sole camera person there for a while. Then we had two cameras and I started training people to replace me. I did that so I could move into other roles, including, you know, stepping in for the lead when she had to to do other things. Recently, a quick story, we've had some trouble with one of the displays that I've had to manually set uh, each service. Last Wednesday night, I was sick. I I asked Amanda to step in for me on the camera, and I'm like, I can't, you know, commit to not running to the bathroom for an entire hour. That's how bad it was. So uh, I had to miss, and uh, team lead called me. And asked, hey, how do we set up the TV? And I was like, oh, well, I've already trained these two people who are going to be there on it. Either one of them can do it. And what I'm getting at here, guys, is you want to make yourself replaceable. A lot of people think that they need to be irreplaceable at their job because that means they can't lose their job. Not being able to lose your job is actually a problem. This isn't the case if you want to get rid, you know, like if they want to get rid of you, they're going to get rid of you. Yeah. What actually happens is this means that you can't ever take time off, take a real break. It also means that you're stuck doing your current job. If no one else can do it, you have to do it. Even if you get promoted, you still have to do your old job. In order to move up and move on, you have to be replaced. And to do that, you have to be replaced. That's pretty much all I've got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.